This is the story about a writer who wrote about a killer and so much more. We're here to tell you about the writer, Michelle McNamara, and the writing that became the book, All Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer. We're happy you've joined us for episode two. Michelle McNamara is the author of the website, True Crime Diary, read by thousands of fans of stellar writing and crime cold cases. On this site, Michelle wrote about hundreds of unsolved crimes, but one man in particular consumed her. One criminal who was originally thought to be two people and who was more active than California's Zodiac killer, committing 50 rapes and 10 murders. In 2012 and 2013, Michelle was working with LA Magazine editor Nancy Miller, and they realized they had an unusual problem. Nancy Miller. We had a conversation early on about, and I'm going to call him Eron's, one of the greatest, I think, weaknesses in why this story had never been told before was because he was seen as two people, like two identities that merged together in this really awkward, awkward, hard to figure out, terrible name. And it's kind of like a, an audacious and you know, gruesome task, but we knew that we had to, like, rebrand the serial killer. Some of the most, like, signature killers in history were a crucial part of their identity was a name that people could remember, and detectives and reporters have done that throughout history. As the story moved forward and we were, in the beginning, trying to do Eron's and Ear and ONS, the editor-in-chief actually, you know, read a draft, and she's like, you guys just have to just change his name. Like, change his name. There was the stakeout killer, the bludgeoner, the greenbelt slayer, midnight whisperer, west coast ghost, the phantom of California, the knot master, which does speak to his ability to tie diamond knots, Mr. Whisper, Mr. Methodical, the ligature killer, and suspect X. Now, these all speak to this idea of someone who is unique in being nameless, faceless, traceless. Uh, but ultimately, Michelle came up with the Golden State Killer, which just seemed to be, uh, in my mind, perfect. Um, I know it was a controversial decision to rename a serial killer. And again, I, I respect that. I think it is there is a certain necessary audacity in, in doing so. But we had to find a way for people to unify with a name that could be easily translated and understood. But I think one of the reasons why she wanted to publish with us because, look, her, her true crime diary was pretty well known, and this was her first big story. But I think she probably wanted to publish with us because we were eager to run it at 7,000 words. Solving the name problem was relatively easy, and the article went to press, creating renewed interest in the case and in Michelle's writing. A book deal was discussed. Michelle's husband, the comedian Patton Oswalt, introduced Michelle to literary agent Daniel Greenberg. I think when Patton introduced me to her for the book, there was also introductions being made to his film and television representatives to pursue that side of it. But she was a writer, and she really wanted to write a book, and our conversations were very much, let's do the book and make it great, and if film and television and other opportunities to adapt it come based on the book, great, and that'll be exciting, but I really want to make this an exceptional book. That was important to her. 
Michelle had wanted to be an author all her life. Her husband, Patton Oswalt. She was constantly writing books and stories. She would sign, she had this uh, apparently a very extensive diary that she would sign each entry, Michelle the writer. She wrote all through um, high school. She taught writing at college for her MFA. She's just always been a writer and always a voracious reader. I, I thought I was a big reader until I met her. Michelle and Dan began to work on the book proposal. Dan Greenberg. We've done as much as we can to create a proposal to show to publishers to see if there's going to be interest in turning this into a book. There were a couple of editors who had reached out to her and then contacted me who had heard of the LA Magazine story, so people were ready to look at it. And we sent it out, made calls and emailed it out, and just started waiting to see who was going to be interested. Uh, my name is Jennifer Barth. I am an executive editor and vice president at Harper. I can't remember if Dan pitched it first or sent me the proposal. No, I think he called me, told me about it, sent me the proposal, and I read it overnight and I was just hooked. And anybody who reads that article, fundamentally the proposal was the article that was in Los Angeles Magazine, and it just grabbed me. I mean, it grabbed me by the, the throat. I couldn't put it down. I loved the voice, I loved the story. Like Michelle, I was a true crime aficionado. Like when I was a kid, The FBI's Most Famous Cases was the book that I kept by my bedside table. Like I don't know what it is about that genre that has always appealed to me. I think it has something to do with being a bit of a control freak and wanting to restore order in somebody's life. But above and beyond everything else, I was just taken by her voice. So the next thing I do is I share the proposal with people who are key to making acquisitions in my group, and that is namely my publisher. I sometimes will ask salespeople to read something. Sometimes you'll ask other colleagues or people you know are interested. And then you also will look at comparative titles. You'll want to see that you can argue to sales. You'll say like, look, you know, James Elroy's My Dark Places sold this many copies, you know. I mean, the comps I was using for this book in a pretty, you know, highfalutin way were like in cold blood. I knew by hook or by crook, I was going to get this book. I was going to publish it. I was going to be her editor. We were going to go do lots of books together. Dan Greenberg. So we had several meetings. Many publishers were interested. And we set up a time for her to come into town and meet with publishers. I think there were six or seven meetings. I don't remember exactly. Jennifer was last. There were great conversations. She was very, very dedicated to the book, obviously, and we spoke a lot about that, but she also was just a real, I don't know if there's a female equivalent of a mensch. The question of the open-endedness of the story certainly came up in those meetings. Best-selling author, Megan Abbott. If you're a real true crime enthusiast, you don't expect there to be a solution. You really don't. Especially if you know in advance there isn't, because you're not even waiting for it. The world is a dangerous place. I've been raised to be told that I my body is not necessarily my own, you know, that, you know, and like, so it like, I don't know, it felt like true crime was sort of like the way to understand this and to sort of give it its significance and stature. So this, this, is, this is important stuff. But it's also the place where true crime would be the only place you would read about Domestic abuse, child abuse, women surviving, being a victim of crime. It was the only place that that appeared. 
No one took it seriously in, you know, literary fiction, big mainstream Hollywood movies, you know, but true crime was all right there. Jennifer Barth. Often when a project comes along that does have a very strong voice, for a, usually for a debut author, um, there can be fierce competition because everybody's looking for that. There are a lot of good stories out there. There are a lot of, you know, news items that people can delve into but it's the person who takes you there that is the difference maker, I think. And that's the person that you want for a career. Like if you kind of even down to, often you'll have a sense of like who within the house are going to be your ambassadors. Who are the people you're going to get to read it early? Sometimes even what designer you're going to ask to work on the jacket. When it all falls into place that way, then I can feel really confident saying, I know how to make this book work. You know, you need to let me buy it. And if you don't, have that, you sort of hang back and don't want to go for broke. Dan Greenberg. So for a variety of reasons, Jennifer just got it. And we had a really great meeting. I think she took Michelle to meet with Jonathan Burnham, who's the publisher of Harper, and got back to the office and there was a message from her. She wanted to buy it that day. I had no question that I was meant to be the editor for this book. Michelle and I were going to do something great. Dan is an amazing partner as an agent. And so we were off to the races. There's at least three ways to read the book. You could read it like a deeply skilled true crime reporter because it's so comprehensive. So I think the hardcore true crime enthusiasts, which is a lot of people, so hardcore is probably not the wrong word, just meaning that they love it. So I think that's one way to read it. The other way is that she's a beautiful writer, and it's sort of this fascinating sort of coming of age and her relationship with her own writing, and it's very much the story of a woman's development and finding her art. So I think you could read it that way too. And then, I, yeah, I think you can read it for this sort of sociocultural question about why women are drawn to true crime and what it does for them and how it's not necessarily what it looks like. Jennifer Barth. There was this intensity to her that she brought to her work that was just thrilling as an editor, like to work with somebody that especially on a first book that really knows their mind so well. And she wasn't somebody who didn't look for guidance and she would send me chunks of the manuscript. I remember one time she sent me one and in the email memo, she said, don't read this alone at night. And I was like, ha ha ha. But I was alone at night, except for I did have my dog up in the country and I was checking the locks. I was so flipped out. I mean, she, she knew what she could do with words. And again, that was really thrilling. And so she was somebody who I thought, this book was going to be the first of many. Um, I didn't think of her as a true crime writer per se. Like I just thought she was a great writer and that she had attached herself to this great story. And it was my, we always agreed that she wouldn't necessarily solve the case, but we really hoped she would. Michelle believes she could turn a negative, crime with no conviction, into a positive, motivating everyday citizens to think like detectives. The magazine article had inspired amateur sleuths. A book could do the same, and in greater numbers. As she says in an email to Jennifer Barth while researching the book, read here by the audiobook narrator, Gabra Zachman. I'm still optimistic about developments in the case, but not blind to the challenge of writing about a currently unsolved mystery. I did have one idea on that front. After my magazine article was published, I received tons of emails from readers, almost all starting along the lines of, you may have thought of this, but if not, what about? 
insert some investigative idea. It really confirmed for me that inside everyone lurks a Sherlock Holmes that believes that given the right amount of clues, they could solve a mystery. If the challenge here, or perceived weakness, is that the unsolved aspect will leave readers unfulfilled, why not turn that on its head and use it as a strength? I have literally hundreds of pages of analyses from both back in the day and more recently, geoprofiles, analysis of footwear, days of the week he attacked, etc. One idea I had was to include some of those in the book to offer the reader the chance to play detective. Michelle's lead researcher, Paul Haynes. That same year I connected with Michelle and I think she immediately recognized the value in what I was doing. And uh, after corresponding almost daily for two years, that's when I formally began working on the book, uh, almost immediately after she pre-sold it. How long to research a decades-old case? It's a very tough call. Editor Jennifer Barth. It really depends on how far along the author is. Some books, the delivery date is scheduled for three years down the road. Some books, even more if they're huge biographies that require a lot of research and a lot of interviews. With Michelle, I think we were giving her maybe a year or a year and a half because she had a lot of material by the time I came on the scene. She had a lot of outtakes that didn't make it into the magazine piece. She also, it was one of those projects by its nature where she could have interviewed forever until she found her guy. The case presented thousands of pieces to a jigsaw puzzle and only one person knew what it was supposed to look like. That one person wasn't Michelle, it was the killer. She blew past her deadline, which I think was 18 months. But that's right, we signed the contract and Michelle goes to write. And she kept uncovering and uncovering and making new sets of contacts and talking to different sets of investigators, and it just took a very long time. I would talk to her maybe once a month, once every couple months, just to say, how's it going? Or I would be in California and we would meet. And she was excited and digging through mountains of research. And there was always talk three or four times of something that was on the horizon that really might catch this guy. In fact, we talked about, and we brought Jennifer into these conversations, what happens if her research finds out who the killer was? How do we publish the book then? And when do we publish the book? And do we wait? Should we not rush to finish this book that doesn't have the killer identified and wait another six months because I really think it's just around the corner? There's a new DNA test, you know, they've identified, they've come up with a list of five or six people who they really think it could be. There always seemed to be something that was one half thrilling her and one half frustrating her because often they just didn't work. Book editor, Jennifer Barth. It's up to the editor to determine when things have to stop and when you have to move on to the, the next phase. And I think in this case, I was so caught up in the, the case and in Michelle's obsession with the case that I was just sort of along for the ride and thinking, because you do hear about, I mean, a lot of the great books in history are not rushed. You know, they are books that editors take leave to go spend time with the authors. Um, the authors spend, you know, four or five years researching it. And I just felt like this was one of those books that, all the time it needed was what we were going to give it. Literary agent, Dan Greenberg. 
the amount of work it takes just to be able to narrow down possibilities, months of research. She's also writing the book. And then in a phone call, you find out that, nope, it's not the guy. And that's it. You just have to start from scratch. You have to find another way into the story. So I have to check with Jennifer, but she was working on this for three or four years. And Jennifer happily extended the, I wouldn't say happily, that might be an exaggeration. She would check in and say, hey, we are planning the list of books for this season. Do you think that Michelle is getting close? And Michelle would send some chapters from time to time and Jennifer would give her notes. And um, she, she didn't get to finish. I remember one time we were going to ask for another extension because a new set of research had come in. And I said, look, I'm sure she'll give you the time. Just tell me how much time you need. And Michelle said, no, I want to come to New York. I want to sit down with Jennifer. They've given me so much time and I really appreciate that. I want to talk to her in person and show her this Excel spreadsheet of all of the names and all of the research that I'm working on just so she knows I'm not twiddling my thumbs. I'm really working hard on this and she came and we met with Jennifer and Jennifer was, you know, said, take the time, do what you need to do. So that was always her attitude, which Michelle was happy about. There is a sense of sometimes when you tell an author that they have to finish something, that you are liberating them a little bit. You're saying there's no more you can do, there's no more research you can do, except for maybe until copy editing. But you are saying, I am now absolving you of, it's in my court. Like you have to get me the manuscript, now it's my turn to take over. Write what you have, send it to me and take a little break. As Michelle writes in the book, For an unsolved serial case to advance, it needs to go back. Early reports are poured over, hindsight wielded like a magnifying glass. Victims and eyewitnesses are recontacted. Dulled memories sometimes sharpen. Occasionally, an overlooked clue shakes loose. Someone will remember an incident that wasn't necessarily officially reported. They'll have a name, but not a number. Calls are made. Michelle's lead researcher, Paul Haynes. This was a case that quickly consumed me. I think what was remarkable about it was the scope of it. And, you know, I've long had an interest in true crime and uh, unsolved serial cases in particular because the um, perpetrators are usually random strangers. That makes the investigation very difficult, you know, just searching for a needle in a haystack. That also makes the motive quite unrelatable and almost uh, exotic. It's not something prosaic like greed or jealousy. It's sexual sadism, and that's something that most people just can't connect with. This particular case, it spanned a 10-year period in 10 counties in California, over a dozen cities. So it involved multiple jurisdictions. And, you know, there were upwards of um, 100 victims, if you count the males that were victimized. Nancy Miller. And I realized now, just sort of hearing sort of what she was going through and just the amount of work that was going into it and all the doors that close in your face and all of the relationships that you have to build and over time, all of the victims and their families who thanked her when that story published, I think it takes a, a grave emotional toll. When we had published the story and it was all done and everything was like, we were finished, it's closed. You know, it was kind of late at night and um, or probably over the weekend, I can't remember, but it was like, you know, outside the bounds of your usual nine to five job. I had, <laughs> I was single at the time and I remember emailing her and saying, you know, God, I just am going to stay home tonight and, like, drink 
half a bottle of wine and like hug my cat. <laughs> and she laughed and she's like, that's, that's, that's exactly it. That's what, that's what it, how you should feel. Um, and that she had to continue and keep going um, was really telling. And I, again, I can't speak for her, but I sense that there's an emotional toll in, actually, she does thought this in our original piece. She says at the very end of the story, I think about how this guy has ruined so many lives and I don't want him to ruin mine. As Michelle writes in the book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Police reports read like stories told by robots. They're terse and demarcated, with little space for judgment or emotion. Initially, the sparseness appealed to me. Scrubbed of extraneous detail, I felt sure his name would gleam. I misjudged. The concise format of the reports is deceiving. Absorbed cumulatively, even the most clipped details began to swarm into an indistinguishable mass. Some moments separated from the pack, imparting jolts of powerful feeling I didn't always see coming. The recently separated 38-year-old mother who scoots across the floor in the dark to find her son's toy saw and tries in vain to use it to cut the bindings from her swollen hands. The 13-year-old girl tied up in bed who asks her beloved dog after the rapist has left the room, You dummy, why didn't you do anything? The dog nudges her with his nose. She tells him to lie down and go to sleep. He does. After years of research, Michelle passed away in her sleep before she could finish the remarkable book she was working on. Agent Dan Greenberg. So I find out that she had died. I was at my Seder, actually, and I got a phone call. And um, everyone was sad and in shock. And we just gave Patton time. We didn't bring it up. You know, no one addressed a contract or a book. We just let Patton deal with her death. And several months went by. I talked to Patton. She told me what he was going through. But at a certain point, five or six months later, I think he said, I'm going to finish the book. We have to get this book published. It's so important to me. It was Michelle's life work. And I'm going to do everything in my power to get this book out into the world. Nancy Miller. To my mind, success has been achieved with this book in showing part of what's really compelling and essential about understanding Michelle McNamara's work is understanding that she didn't see herself as the one person who was going to crack this case. She was essentially like the liaison or the person who was able to aggregate all this stuff. But what's important for people to know is that it could be one person behind their laptop who cracks this case. There could be, you know, a group of people like in this message board that she writes about where people get together and using their hive mind, they solve this case. So to my mind, the work that Michelle has done, which is extraordinary in including a, a, a terrific narrative and incredible writing, but she's also just opened the door and given everyone the most accurate information that I think is available out there in one place for someone to pick it up, read the book, see if there's anything in there that they recognize. She has the blessing of a lot of people whose families were affected by this. I know that she spoke to Debbie Domingo, whose mother was murdered by GSK. All of the detectives trusted her with information and insight and, and also valued her as someone who was going to give them things they didn't have. 
And she had the respect of a community of very bright people who were on these message boards. She has their respect, and they are extremely smart. So between this, all of these people, the guy's, let's say, 60-something, there's an opportunity to catch him. You know, most American men do live past the age of 60. Right now, in 2017, he, he would be between the ages of uh, 60 and, uh, I would say, 75. So, you know, I mean, the odds of him being alive are, are decreasing. But I still think, at least rationally, he's alive. And I don't think Michelle was, certainly she was, so, she was humble enough to say, I'm not saying it's going to be me, but I'm going to present everything I have so that it could be you. Publishing All Be Gone in the Dark is a triumph following the tragedy of Michelle's death, but it still leaves a mystery. There's a room full of notebooks and notes and just things that I, I could, I, I could, I don't, I'll never have the chance to sit down with her after the book comes out and go back through the process of what it was like to pursue each aspect of this maze and what her thought process must have been like. And also, I'll never get the chance to know whether if I were to ask her that, if she would go, I'd rather not talk about that, which would also be very revealing and telling. The stuff that she wouldn't want to end up talking about would be just as revealing to me as the stuff that she would. Obviously, we had a very, very trusting and communicative marriage and relationship, but then the way that she died, that means just questions that I'll never know the answers to. Next time on All Be Gone in the Dark, we agreed that, you know, it really was up to Patton, that he was intimately involved with the project, aware of all Michelle's research, knew where everything was. We estimated that Michelle had probably written about two-thirds of it. You know, that we did want to pursue it, we wanted to move forward, and that if Patton was game, then we would figure out how to fill in the missing pieces. Shortly after Michelle passed, I was contacted by Patton's assistant and proposed putting me in touch with two other true crime writers that uh, were friends of Michelle's. We started piecing together the sections that could ultimately comprise the book. And that would be the cleanest possible version of Michelle's completed pages. Subscribe to All Be Gone in the Dark on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. The book that this podcast is based on, All Be Gone in the Dark, is available wherever print books, ebooks, and audiobooks are sold. It's published by Harper, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. This podcast is a production of Harper Audio. Nathan Rossborough, Technical Director. Anna Maria Alessi, Executive Producer, Writer, and Editor. Thank you for joining us, and see you next time.